0: Glistening water, rising and falling, never shutting its eyes. A place of refuge, safe and secure, for animals of any size. It's a whispering mouth, surging and quivering, stretching like a long tidal pool. It's a giant's footsteps, laid in the earth, where the air is always cool. It's a stretching landscape, glistening and windswept, shimmering in the light of noon. It's a living rainbow, a garden of life, its earth's cocoon. Some people call it a salt marsh, and some people call it disgusting. But I have just listed
1: to you what it whispers to me when I stand on its trusting landscape. Come with us on a journey to the salt marsh at Granite Island, New Haven, Connecticut. We will find native plants, invasive plants, and a science mystery. Wade Elmer of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station studies plant pathology
0: and ecology. He talked with us about the importance of salt marshes.
2: That they're the most productive ecosystems on the planet. You know, we think about the coral reefs off Florida, and we think about the rainforest, and, and we think of those places being really productive areas. Actually, right here is the most productive ecosystem. But what's so interesting is only a few grass species here. You go to the rainforest and there's millions of different species of, of plants and so forth. And here there's only a few, but this, they are more productive here. All that water coming from the rivers mixes with the salt water and it causes a, a swirl of different types of nutrients to become available. And the Spartina grass, eat, eat, you know, they, they compose a lot of that biomass. They provide food for the crabs, the crustaceans. The phytoplankton they're, like, they're kind of like nursery gardens for all kinds of fish and baby lobsters and insects and birds, and many things live here that are so important also all, all that stuff coming down the rivers all that nitrogen and pollution and all that stuff that we you know when we drive our cars and the oil gets mm-hmm. on there and then you, you see you 've seen the oil when it drains into the drains and such it 's all coming into here, and this is where it could, this is where it can all get broken down into just water and co2 so so it's a great thing for detoxifying because all that chemical all that nitrogen all that poison in the waters that would go out into the sound and that would hurt the animals out there the lobsters and the fish and the birds they protect Yeah. yeah if the water comes in heavily for every part of the salt marsh you have here you can you can reduce the the amount of the water surge coming in there It's kind of like a buffer it's like standing behind a wall
1: Former state archaeologist Nick Bellatoni talks about salt marsh archaeology.:
3: The salt marshes developed later on after the glaciers, um, And then as a result, though, the salt marsh provides a lot of food, not only the river but the marsh itself. So just like you, could, just like you guys go there now and you, you, you know, you, you, you do the plants that are there, you do the wildlife that's there. Well, there was even more of that when the Indians were here, before industry and all of that. So that basically what ended up happening was um, there was plenty of food around there. And the salt marsh provided part of the food. So what I'm saying is the formation of the salt marsh brings the people.
1: Nick describes how the natives used salt marsh grasses.
3: How exactly they were used, we're not quite sure, but they could have been used for baskets. They could have been used. They could have used uh, that whole estuary environment in the marshes uh, for different products. Probably uh, more likely, though, what it's what the salt marsh gave in terms of other plant and animal life that became important. But we do see, not in this area. I've seen it in, uh, up near Hartford, in the Connecticut River. Native Americans, well, to store their food, they would dig a hole in the ground. You know, you have a refrigerator to store your food. You have a machine that keeps your food fresh. Well, what Native Americans did is they took their beans, their corn, their squash, their sunflower seeds, and to keep it as fresh as they could, they dug a hole in the ground, and they lined it with grasses. So they would line it with maybe the the salt marsh grasses, and then they would place their food in it, and they would cover it over so the animals couldn't get to it. But the earth would keep it cooler in the summer, and it would keep it warmer in the winter so that they would be able to store food, not as good as you can, because you've got a machine that does it and can keep a t- constant temperature year, or year round. But the earth helped them keep their food for a longer period of time. It was like a prehistoric refrigerator. And so what ended up happening is that um, they not only used the earth, but they lined it with grasses. So it could be that the salt marsh grasses were also used in those ways too. So they could have been used as fibers, they could have been used as liners um, and sources of food, but um, um, we're not sure because of the fact that, archeologically, the grass is gone by the time we
4: could dig it.
0: Naturalist Lucien Beaufort talks about the natural histories of special plants around Granis Island.
4: I would really point out the stress, the importance of the vegetation that's there. There's starry Solomon seal that's there, which is a really neat colonial plant that's native to dunes uh, and sandy environments. Uh, there are lots of raspberries out there. There's poison ivy. Everybody knows what poison ivy is? And let me, th- here's an interesting fact about poison ivy. Are you ready for this? Poison ivy is food for 27 different species of birds, just the berries. So uh, when we think about poison ivy, well sure, if we're allergic, we need to be careful around poison ivy, but when we pull it up, we may be eliminating food from bird habitat. So when we start thinking about poison ivy, we should also think about other vegetation that's there. one other particular vegetation that's associated with poison ivy in the same habitat is something called jewelweed if you get poison ivy or if you know you're going to get poison ivy if you crush up jewelweed and put it on that spot the chances are you will not get that poison ivy and so poison ivy lives in one space in that environment and right next door lives jewelweed so when we study nature as naturalists we'll look at the natural history of those plants and animals and what was looked at from uh, Native Americans or what was looked at from the latest medical discovery in the latest uh, journal will be important to us as natural historians. So when we look at the environment, we may want to look at all the plants that are there on Granite Island and at Quinnipiac Meadows Nature Preserve. and I would also look at the change in seasons and see what is there in the winter time. Is there enough food there to sustain birds and wildlife through the winter? Or will there be something more necessary in order to improve their habitat during those times?
1: Lucian tells about the invasive species and how they got here.
4: Well, the particular kinds of invasive species that live there are honeysuckle, uh, barberry, uh, There will be a tree of heaven that lives there. Uh, um, And those species will be cut down. Um, Some of the issues surrounding invasive species are that there are a lot of work. And that this work will go on indefinitely. And that these invasive species have gotten here from foreign parts of the world by transport and a lot of places where you'll find invasive species being introduced are ports where ships will dock or planes will land
0: wade took us on a tour of the special plants of Granite island we would like to invite you to come along with us
2: there's two species right here see this really fine green stuff Uh This is called Spartina patens, and it's really, they used to actually mow this for cattle, but they used to call it salt hay, because it was in the salt marsh. And this is called Distictilis. this is another salt marsh species, generally you find these higher up in the marshes.
1: Spartina patens, also known as salt hay, is a species of cordgrass that can be found in salt or brackish marshes. It can only be found in the high marsh, usually in areas that only get flooded in higher-than-average tides. Spartina patens grows from one to two feet tall.
2: Down here in the creek banks, these these other like right in here, that's a different species of grass. You see that? That's called Spartina alterniflora.
0: Wade talks about the unusual salt marsh grass, Spartina alterniflora. This grass grows on the outer rims of the salt marsh bog and gets flooded with every high tide.
2: It can live in salt water. It can just it can survive in pure salt water. It's an amazing plant. It's one of the only plants that can actually live in the really low marsh areas. The low marsh is what floods every single day. Inside the roots there are great big air pockets and they, they actually keep air down there. They actually pull air down through the roots so they're able to breathe in this wet conditions. They can also take salt out of the water and, they, they'll, and they'll actually excrete the salt through the leaves.
1: Groundsel tree is in the same plant family as the sunflower. It has a female and a male gender. The male Grounsel tree blooms before the female Grounsel tree. However, the female is two times as big as the male. Grounsel tree is known as the shrub of the salt marsh. It grows in the high marsh area that rarely gets flooded by the high tide. Sea Lavender is a perennial plant that grows one to three feet tall and two feet wide. It blooms in August with a beautiful purple color. Sea Lavender can survive in poor, sandy or rocky soil. It is also known as Marsh Rosemary, and was used by the Quinnipiacs to control stomach problems. Its stems have a reddish tinge, and its leaves are dark green and leathery. Seaside goldenrod is an important food source for monarch butterflies and other animals. The flowers are light yellow. It blooms from August to October. You may think you're allergic to seaside goldenrod, but you aren't. The pollen in the flower is heavy and won't float in the air. You may however be allergic to ragweed. Advertisers use seaside goldenrod in their commercials because of its beautiful color. As opposed to ragweed, which as the name implies, is not as beautiful. You can find creeping bent grass near lawns, waterways, pastures, meadows, salt marshes, and other natural communities. Creeping bent grass is widely used as a golf course turf because of its dense growth and tolerance of close mowing. It is a spreading, cool-season perennial grass that forms a dense mat and is quite invasive. Glasswort, also called pickleweed, is related to cacti, and the stems can hold water. It's an edible plant that tastes very salty. People use glasswort plants to make soda ash. Soda ash is used in making soap and glass. Glasswort grows in high marsh areas. You can find it mixed in with spartina plants. Once it turns crimson, it is easy to find. The leaves on Orach are light green arrowhead shaped. The stem is red and green. The flowers it grows are small, greenish, and clustered on slender spikes along the stem, which can grow up to three feet long. It is found on less saline salt marshes on the high marsh. It blooms from July to September. Saltmarsh aster has a whitish purple flower with a yellow center. It's- Stems grow like a zigzag and usually grows about one to two feet tall. It grows in most salt marshes and in all parts of America. Its bright color makes it easy to see in all the salt marsh grasses. Salt marsh aster is a perennial plant. It flowers in late August into the fall. Marsh elder provides nesting habitats for birds such as the red-winged blackbird and marsh wren. Marsh elder is often confused with ground-cell tree. The key to knowing the difference between the species is that ground-cell tree leaves are arranged alternately, while marsh elder leaves are oppositely arranged.
0: Phragmites is a tall, stalk-like plant with a brown tuft at the top that grows very dense on the edge of the salt marsh, where the salt water cannot reach. Frag, as some people refer to it, is highly invasive in and around the salt marsh despite its intolerance to salt water. Once it begins to take over an area, its dense root systems prevent the growth of native salt marsh plants. Although fragmites grows around the globe, its origin is still not clear. Some scientists believe that the more aggressive subspecies has replaced most of the native Phragmites. To tell them apart, you need to look at their stems. Native stems frequently appear reddish or purplish, but the stems of the invasive Phragmites are dull green.
2: You can tell how salty the water is by where you see Phragmites and where you see Spartina opatens. So They say right here is where the salt concentrations change because Phragmites can't live in salted conditions.
1: We talked to Wade about plant pathogens and how plant diseases can affect us.
2: So about 150 years ago all the Irish had to leave Ireland and they went all over. The, they went to Australia, they went to Canada, they came to America, a lot came into Boston. We had a lot of Irish. They all left because a plant fungus attacked all the potatoes and all the potatoes died. And that was the main source of food. In fact, my ancestors, which came from Switzerland, actually had to leave Switzerland about the same time because even though they weren't starving to death, there was such poverty because that one fungus went through and caused all these problems. With New Haven's called the Elm City. I don't know if you know this, but there's been three epidemics of a disease of elms that have gone through. It's called Dutch Elm Disease, and it came from Holland, as you would think. And this killed all the ones. And now the ones we have now on the green, if you go up to New Haven green, you see those big elms, those are probably the only ones left because they had some resistance. But even to this day, if you drive up route 10 or up 69 or anywhere, you'll see young elm trees dying every spring. And these are the young ones that are still susceptible. So yeah, there's still many, many problems on plant pathogens around the world. And they still cause a lot of problems for everybody.
1: We talked about the ongoing problem of sudden vegetation dieback, where entire salt marshes disappear within one season.
2: But this is peculiar because it just dies all, all at once. Within one season, things die. And these are all the places along the Atlantic coast into the Gulf where we know we've seen dieback. Actually, there's been a few more places on there since I made this graph. We don't know really what causes dieback, you know, they're not clear. But we tend to think that there's a stress, some type of stress that goes on to the salt marsh, whether it's drought, too much nitrogen, maybe it's getting too warm, maybe the the sea levels are getting too high, something there that's stressing the marsh. And then on top of that, then we have two biotic, abiotic is something that's not biological, and then we have biotic diseases, or biotic problems, and that's the crab, and the fungus, we think those are two biotic um, things. So these plant pathogens, see these, these are auger plates and these are pieces of that Spartina tissue. And I, I put, these came from an area where there was dieback and you see that fuzzy white stuff coming off the stems, that's the fungus. And it's actually the fungus where we were studying. And then also there's this crab we talk about that actually eats, it's, it's got these big claws out there called the purple marsh crab. Some of the work that we've done, like here's an example. Look at this. This is 2007 at Essence State Park. This was two years ago, and it's even gotten worse. That's 2012. That's five years. Look what look what the crab has done in five years. Same place. Unbelievable destruction happening. Actually, this grass here, which we're trying to save, is actually very aggressive in, the, in that it, it, it's invading. Marshes around the world. It's invading China. This grass right here. It's invading France. It's invading It's even on the on the west coast of our own country in California This grass doesn't survive there uh, or or Is not naturally there, but but it's but it's gotten over there and and it's pushing. It's so aggressive It's pushing out the native grass there. They call that Spartina foliosa This is Spartina alterniflora little differences so we really have the strongest, most aggressive grass in the world right here. And that's why it's so puzzling that it's dying. You know, that missed it. so, you know, we're trying to figure out what's causing that. Yeah. But the crab that I had in the, in the jar back in, in your classroom is called Sasarma. It makes a bigger hole. And it actually comes out at night and eats living grass. So we, we can show areas where it's actually consuming the grass. And we've been able to show that if the, if, the, if the plant is not healthy, if it's got a disease, the crabs actually eat it faster than they would if, they, if it was healthy.
1: Then we made an alarming discovery.
2: Here we go. Sasarma is here. You see <gasps> oh that big old... My that, oh my goodness. Yeah. And, he, and if, we were to, if we had a shovel, we could dig down there and get them. But that is a Sasarma hole. And Here's another one. Okay, so Sasarma is here, that purple marsh crab, but there's no dieback. Why? Yeah. Oh. So why is it devastating certain marshes why? and not this one? That's a good question.
1: Until this science puzzle is solved, we asked Wade what we could do.
2: You, you could become what we call a monitor. And that's what every individual person should be, for, um, is to be a monitor for this marsh. And that just comes out here and look. Sometimes taking pictures every year from the same spot can be helpful. Because mm-hmm. that way you can say, oh my gosh, look look, look how the, all the Phragmites is changing. It's moving up there or coming down here. And, and later on, someone might need to know have that information. Also, you can volunteer for um, programs that they have available. Certain places will do programs where they actually will plant grass or they will monitor for the birds out here mm-hmm. so just, just being active in your community and, and in your salt marshes the Audubon Society and and these land trusts the New Haven Land Trust be two places where you could you could volunteer and become involved.